HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by One House. Learn more about our comprehensive hospitality solutions at one-haus.com. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Mary Izette. From Fomentabody. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, October 12th, 2016. This is the 119th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a brilliant culinary scientist, and I will introduce him in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to embrace your inner nerd. Yes, that's right. It's good to be smart. If you're passionate about school and learning a subject, take pride in it. There's no shame in being the brightest in the room and getting educated. Rather, that's cool. So be a nerd and geek out. That's my tip today. Now, I'm excited to have my guest calling in. It is Ali Buzari. He is a culinary scientist, author, educator, and co-founder of Pilot R&D, a culinary research and development company based in Northern California. As a chef with a PhD in food biochemistry, Ali has helped to lead the charge in changing the way we think about cooking by teaching and developing curriculum at top universities from Ivy League schools to the Culinary Institute of America and collaborating with the country's most innovative restaurants, including Banu, 11 Madison Park, the restaurant at Meadowood, and the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group. His new book, Ingredient, Unveiling the Essential Elements of Food, has already been named one of the biggest cookbooks of 2016 by Eater. And uh, I think he's out there on the phone. So hello, Ali. Are you there? Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. 
Oh, thanks for coming on the show. I'm just reading from reading your bio. I'm like just in awe of everything you've accomplished already in your career. <laughs> it's it's good wordsmanship on the bio is all it is. Oh yeah, well, well, but but all truth. So <laughs> um, it's good stuff. Um, so I like to start out and see how people got into this the industry. Did you know you wanted to work in with food and with science in particular? Uh, no, I knew I liked both of those things in isolation. Like I was totally one of those people born in the late 80s that like when the Food Network came to prominence, like it sort of captivated me and I was like, oh yeah, that's what, that's what cooking would be. And, you know, later on I found, I found out that, you know, that's oftentimes very, very the opposite of what cooking actually is um, as your profession. But um, yeah, I was, I was fascinated with cooking. I, I loved food. Um, it kind of was a family thing for me since um, my parents were from Texas and Iran, so like two very food-centric, very different places with a lot to discuss. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we were already the family that would pick vacation destinations based on what kind of food we could eat. Um, so, yeah, I, I was primed for it, and I was a huge chemistry nerd um, all the way back from, like, the beginning of high school. And so I was in restaurants as, like, my side job from high school through college and, and on, and uh, I was studying science the whole time. So it was kind of this thing where it was, it was right there. It was only a matter of time until I got the jelly in the peanut butter jar. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So after school, how, what did, well, how did you end up teaching at the Culinary Institute of America? Because, I mean, you, as you noted, you grew up, or you were born in the late 80s, you're, you're, very young you're very accomplished and you started <laughs> teaching well you started teaching at a very young age there correct yeah i was i was 23 okay um which which <laughs> is just is still crazy to me most most of my students were older than me um i was definitely the the youngest um faculty member at the cia and uh to this day after you know Three, three years and change, four years teaching um, at the CIA, and then, you know, several years after that of uh, doing guest lectures and things, people still ask me if I'm a student when I walk in um, and ask me, like, if I'm looking for, you know, orientation. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was, it was right place, right time. There was um, an amazing culinary scientist, uh, one of my mentors, a guy named Chris Loss, um, who was teaching... Uh, sort of the, the basic fundamental principles of like how to survive your first semester of culinary school um, and the science behind it. And he moved from the California campus to the New York campus. So there was this like vacuum void that needed to be filled. And I think a lot of it was just, I was a warm body who said that I could do science and cook. <laughs> um, and, and one thing led to another and I like, you know, somehow got that job. It was, it was absolutely mind blowing. Yes, and are you are you still teaching at the CIA? No, I'm not teaching as like a, a faculty member, but I do probably speak at the CIA uh, two to four times a year for different like guest lectures, like I was saying, and, and events and uh, conferences and things like that. So, okay, um, still very friendly with all those guys. Yes, I imagine. 
So then when did you launch Pilot R&D? And do you say R plus D or am I saying it wrong? Uh, we, we, no, we say R&D. Okay. The R plus D is like a, is like a signature brand thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good As, one. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's a thing that you, I guess like now we can't get away from doing that kind of stupid stuff. But, you know, the, the plus is fun. It, it looks better than the ampersand in, in my opinion but um pilot we actually celebrated our two-year two-year anniversary um a few days ago and Happy anniversary. Um, it, it was it was interesting two years ago it was like it was me and um basically my idols um kyle Connaughton, who had been running um the r&d and running basically the fat duck experimental kitchen um for a long time before he came back to the u.s and did um, basically a stint being the go-to, like, red phone hotline help desk for the culinary industry. And, you know, think think of an awesome chef in any city in the, in the country, and they probably at some point interacted with him or, or something that he's put in, put out there as, as a way to get stuff done. Um, and then Dan Felder, who had been doing all the R&D for Momofuku, um, he came out to the Bay Area and was actually leading R&D at Cezanne um, here in San Francisco for um, about a year. And so all of us, I, I was, I was um, doing R&D for the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group and, um, you know, uh, on the side with Bennu and SPQR and, and Bar Tartine and all these really awesome restaurants um, in the Bay Area. And so all of this stuff was sort of happening um, a little bit ad hoc you know we had our like grassroots consultancies and we basically had this idea um eating dinner one night all together um like hey you know there's there's been days when like a chef like courtney um the chef at bar tartine would like text us something about carrots some like really orange carrot puree that she wanted to make and we would all be on a group text just just like burying her in content (laughs) Of, uh, of ideas and, and techniques and thoughts and whatever. We said, what if we, what if we like got paid to do this all together? Um, so we, we decided to, to make it an official company and we actually ended up roping in our fourth co-founder whose name is Dana Peck. Um, she was our lawyer for a hot second and the giant awesome like, uh, corporate IP law firm that we were working with had assigned Dana to us because they knew she was really into food. And after like one or two conversations, we figured out that before she, you know, went to crazy fancy law school, she was working with like Stupac uh, at uh, mm-hmm. Pastry at WD50 every once in a while. She was working, she'd worked at Gramercy Tavern and um, she, like a bunch of really awesome places. And she was a, she was a buyer for William Sonoma for a few years. So like she knew so much of this industry as well or, or sometimes better than we did. We're like, oh my God, what, what better of a person to actually run the business? So the pirate ship became a lot more legit when we found Dana. Right. Well, that, and that makes sense that you turned it into a business that you were, if you're just doing it on this side, I could just imagine um, what the, the conversation going back and forth about carrots and everything else that you advise people <laughs> on. <laughs> um, and, and so then so, so, you then came up with the idea of the, of the book for ingredient, mm-hmm. um, which I feel mm-hmm. is probably based on everything you're doing or have been doing. Pilot R and D is that? I mean, did it did yeah. it kind of unfold like that? 
so ingredient is sort of based on i um i got the idea for the book from having taught so many different types of people about food um i realized that the conversations that i was having with a culinary student when i was just trying to explain like how this thing is going to be crispy so that they can like pass their their cooking practical at the end of the week um that conversation about crispiness was actually the same conversation that I would have with like Corey Lee at Bennu. And and that was mind blowing to me because I was thinking to myself like, here's a three Michelin star chef and here's an 18 year old who's just trying to make it through their first couple weeks of culinary school. How is it possible that the same principles explain both of their food and, and both of what they're trying to do? And then from that little realization, it sort of went on and on and I realized that the same questions that my little sister was asking about, like, how Hot Pockets work were the same <laughs> as what was going on at the CIA and a three Michelin star restaurant. And then when we started Pilot, like, the same questions of, like, you know, if it's, if it's um, something for, like, a quick-serve restaurant where there's, like, you know, 15 locations around the country, or if it's something that's going into a package onto a shelf, or, you know, if, if you wanted to make, like, chicken skin potato chips or you know, whatever – the, the science of crispy of that is the same as the science of crispy as uh, uh, the signature dish at Bennu is the same as the science of crispy on the outside of an M&M or on the inside of a Kit Kat. Like, it was this weird, like, conspiracy theory-esque moment of, like, it's all connected, man. <laughs> and um, I, had, I had the benefit of talking to um, Francis Lamb. Uh, um, he's at the great. Time, who I was, I was sort of a fanboy of his and just his ability to have and communicate the feels about food better than anybody and I, I he he was honestly one of the catalysts that took the idea for the book from being just a crazy idea that I kind of felt um, egotistical about even thinking that I could write a book to something that I was actually writing uh, a pitch and getting a literary agent and all these things and what he said to me was that this was the chance for me to like take off my um, my glasses and hand them to anybody who reads the book and basically give them my prescription for how I look at food. And that's where this sort of metaphor of x-ray vision in the kitchen came about. And uh, yeah, that, that's sort of the genesis of the whole thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel, I mean, is there or was there any anything out there you thought that, or what did you reference or what, I'm thinking science intimidates so many people, but there's so many restaurants yeah. and, and chefs and everyone's cooking. But I feel science and the understanding the process is one of those things we don't talk that much about. And I think this is something I've heard you say before that it's it, it has to do with the language also that, that you're speaking about science yeah. and that you're using terms that people can relate to. Right. So um, I, I tell you an exact example of that. Um, my first day at the CIA in California, um, I went around and you know just introduced myself as the new guy to all of the chefs there. And that first day, I batted about 500 in terms of the chefs who were super excited to nerd out about things that that seemed more aesthetically sciencey, whether it was liquid nitrogen or precision temperature cooking or, you know, some of the novel ingredients that people use or whatever it was. And then the other 50% was like, nah, man, I'm all about mirepoix and breaking down whole animals, and I don't cook with science. And that, that 
first of all, was like a consequence of the time. We were still all a little hungover from the media talking about molecular gastronomy every 20 seconds. But right. now, you know, it's interesting. There, there traditionally has been a, a sort of schism in, in, the, in the cook world. There are the nerds, the process nerds who really want to geek out and are, are the type who will dig in and read um, Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking cover to cover and we'll read modernist cuisine cover to cover, and you know who have pictures of of Kenji from Serious Eats like postered up on their wall. <laughs> like those types of people have often had philosophical disagreements with the type of people who are like, no, nah, I just want to cook from the wrist, and you know, I, I really am all about the ingredients and the flavors, and a lot of the like very pastoral imagery of food. And my whole goal with this was. I don't, I don't care which side you fall on. Both sides make absolutely amazing food. My mission is to show you guys that whether you're making an omelet or whether you're trying to make an omelet levitate and speak to you, um, the, the science of how that omelet works is the same. And, and the science of, you know, spherification is the exact same science as traditional ways to make tofu and canned tomatoes and cheese. And, um, showing the parallels between them and also introducing it exactly like you're saying in, in, in a language that is just forget the word science. This is just how stuff works. And even the most like traditional um, sort of more like primal feeling cook, they, they think in terms of process. They think of this is what I'm going to do to the, to the onions. This is what's going to happen when it starts to smell this way. This is what's going to happen when the pan starts to make a different sound. And that that level of instinct is, is one of the most powerful things we have in the food world. Like that's why I think chefs always are gonna have in some respects a leg up on scientists because they understand the imminent hands on side of food. And so what I wanted to do was give everyone, regardless of what you're trying to cook, a like smartphone GPS version of those instincts that you can overlay onto your own gut feeling of okay, this cookie dough isn't quite hydrated enough. Um, or it's tearing, or it's you know sticking to the to the roller, or whatever it is. Um, just ways to troubleshoot in the moment, rather than having to do a bunch of homework ahead of time. Right. No, that makes that makes complete sense, and I feel there's such a need for your book. I'm I'm glad you've written it, and uh, <laughs> we're going to come back and talk more about what is in this book. Let people know. So, but first, we're going to take a little break. So, stay with us. This is Only Industry on Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Tom Cruise. That's Cruise, C-R-U-Z. And this track is called Casanova. This episode is brought to you by One House. At One House, we noticed that most serious chefs and managers don't hang out in brightly lit offices. So we go out in the fields to gather the best talent wherever they may be. We meet and talk to them like humans used to do back in the day. We are the people people. 
Our talent sourcing covers salaried dining room, kitchen, and corporate professionals. We thrive in Michelin-starred, James Beard, and mom-and-pop environments alike, from coast to coast. Drop us a line at one-haus.com or at info at one-haus.com for our confidential, up-to-date, and relevant career options, or if you're an operator seeking a culinary or management-level pro. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Ali Buzari. He's the author of a new book called Ingredient, Unveiling the Essential Elements of Food. And he likes to say ingredients with a capital I, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so in the book, you have eight ingredients is how you break it down. And, and they have personalities is what I've learned. Yep. So... Um, Let's talk about these these eight ingredients and 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 their personalities. <laughs> yeah, so this is the part where I say capital I a million times. Yeah. So the the eight capital I ingredients are like the earth, wind, and fire like elements that make absolutely everything we will ever cook and eat, um, whether that is a roasted beet or a cappuccino, and. Those ingredients are things that we're already kind of familiar with, either from what we're feeling guilty about looking on the back of a label or just, you know, talking about things in, in the normal food culture. But it's things like water, sugars, fats and oils and, and lipids, um, proteins, minerals, gases, heat, and carbs. Um, and when I say that each of those building blocks has personality, um, that is truly stemming from the way that I look at what this, what these guys do in terms of usual suspects when I'm trying to figure out what is making this recipe so good or what's making it fall short and so on and so forth. So um, there are so many complex things that happen with food. I wanted to find a way to just cut through to the bone and really quickly figure out what was the important stuff to pay attention to. So like when you're looking at Roux and you're making a gumbo or something like that. Um, there, there are specific things that are happening in that that roux. There, um, it's turning brown. It's becoming nutty. It's helping to thicken your soup. Um, each of those, like the brown, the nutty, and the thickening, are coming from a specific one of these capital I ingredients, and it's just part of their personality. And I've I've been, you know, giving sort of little workshops on how this this book works. And one of the things I've said a lot is. By the time you're done reading the book, you should look at um, a really nicely seared scallop or um, a, a thing of balsamic vinegar or a package of miso, and you should be able to look at those and be like, oh, man, that is such a protein thing to do. Right. <laughs> just just, just having, having, a, having a gut sense of what these things are going to be up to and which ones you have to worry about and which ones you can kind of ignore in different situations, it really gives you this, like, a uh, narrowed sense of scope where when you're just trying to make that emulsion stick together or you're just trying to keep um, those greens green or uh, you're trying to keep something crispy or you really, really want this consomme to be aromatic and fragrant, there's a million things in the world that could go right or wrong. 
but they all come down to just a couple of different really simple patterns that, again, they're, they're sort of the personalities of these ingredients, capital I. Right. And I love that you have the visuals in the book because with little notes by by the ingredients because it's I, I've been going through it and just quickly learning little tidbits about about mm-hmm. things. And it, it's a really mm-hmm. easy way to absorb information is what I was finding, which is good. It, it, yeah, it, it's, it's a weird feeling because. I'm a very visual learner. I mean, you can probably already tell there are times when I speak almost exclusively in visual metaphors. <laughs> um, and, and that's just always how I've, I've learned concepts, and that's always how I've taught things. Um, but the one flaw in that plan is that I'm a horrendous artist. Like, so bad. Absolutely horrible. Um, like, stick figures are, like, a, a pinnacle of achievement for me. <laughs> and so I've had, I've had these, like, really rich like figures in my head and um, what's going on in a bread dough or, or um, you know, how I'm getting a croquette to stick together or whatever. And I haven't been able to really communicate them visually um, until this book um, when I had the luxury of teaming up with a comic book illustrator and a Nat Geo explorer <laughs> to do uh, illustrations and, and photos respectively. And those guys are visual storytellers. So it's like, it's a little surreal to see these really pretty visuals that I've had in my head for years for the first time actually in a way that anybody else could see them because I'm sure as hell not going to be able to get them out. (laughs) Um, It's it's definitely the... the, It, it, in a lot of ways, um, depends more heavily on the visuals than on the text itself. Well, it's it's. I think it's a combination, but definitely, I think, I know your book is is designed not just for Thomas Keller, but for your my mom, you know, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and someone looking at when you can see something and visualize it and, and understand, um, uh, how a home cook might be able to substitute an ingredient or just kind of get the science behind things. Um, I think it, it yeah. definitely, it, it works. So, um, I, I think your collaboration and that you didn't put your own stick figures in was, was a good call. <laughs> well, thanks. I, uh, I, I agree with you. Um, yeah, no, and it's just interesting to see. I don't know, just things that caught my eye. I was flipping through, like, even just, like, marshmallows that was in the gases and bubbles section. And just ha- what yeah. that it makes them white. Like, I didn't, the bubbles, the air bubbles. And I, I never, I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Or I never thought about it, actually. That's mm-hmm. that's something I was finding. Like, a lot of these things with, with food and, and like, some of it, well, you know, I mean, maybe more about carbs or sweets or things that are, you know, general knowledge that we talk about but some of these things i've right. never really given much thought to so it's i find it really yeah. interesting and and the goal with those illustrations is so that when you see the carb one on how thickening works with starch or gravy or or you know starch in a gravy or pectin in a tomato sauce or whatever it is um it, it becomes this thing almost this is, this may sound weird, but it's almost like a visual version of like a jingle that helps you remember something. It's it's like you're you're trying to figure out you know what you're what's going wrong with the sauce or how to go about you know following this recipe if you don't have a certain component that the recipe calls for or whatever whatever you might be working on with the sauce. You can have this really beautiful vivid image in your mind that helps 
keep you sort of focused on the trick of that sauce, on, on how it's going to work, how it's not going to work. And what's cool, like I was saying, is exactly this, this book isn't just for Thomas Keller and you know, chefs in, in that upper stratosphere. It's for a college student just trying to figure out how to keep ramen noodles from sticking together. And, and those very, very simple, very visual um, uh, examples and illustrations, the, the point of it is to give you um, a roadmap that can stick in your head um, and, and you can follow regardless of, of what is physically in front of you in the pan. Yeah, no, it's it's great. You really did a, a wonderful job, and um, everyone should go out and get this book, Ingredient. And before Thanks. we, oh, you're welcome. Before we take a break, I want to ask my question I had from last week. So I asked mm-hmm. my guest to ask you a question. It was Becky Tarani. She's the director of client management at American Express and the co-founder of Tech Table Summit. So she wants to know, is 3D printing food something for real that has legs, something you've looked into? Um, She noted she's been reading about it, and it sounds interesting to solve food needs around the world. Um, I'm not that familiar with this. I looked it up, and it sounds really bizarre to me, but Uh the question's for you, Um, so go ahead and answer. Yeah, yeah. So so it's, it's, it's definitely something with potential. Um, I think in general, there, there's a really interesting trend right now in food tech um, just to replicate what we already have. Um, and so I, I think there's, there's definitely a limit to that. And, and there's a limit in taking our old mindset and being like, all right, what if, what if we could print a pizza? <laughs> and that's great. And, and that's like a very important like training wheel step to what this could do. But Making pizza is not something we're having problems with. Um, like actually getting the parts of the pizza to be in the places we want them to is not something we're having problems with. Where I'm excited for 3D printing to push food is things that the best cook in the world couldn't actually do. Like that's, that's when you're talking about robotics and new like hard tech, new hardware, rather mm-hmm. than all the cool stuff we can do with computing and software, the thing that gets me excited about new hardware is like, Oh my God! What if you could? You, what if you could print a food that was actually the, um, not like an everlasting gobstopper, but the one of the other Willy Wonka candies that like changes okay. flavor drastically as you eat it. Um, you know, you could print like little gradients of different um, components, different tastes and aromas. You could make stuff that had like a different level of sensory engagement, or if it wasn't something that was super magic tricky, like. What if there was something about being able to precisely place components of food with a 3D printer that allowed it to retain its nutrient content for longer or allowed it to hang out on a shelf without, you know, spoiling or, or losing um, any of its appealing characteristics so that, you know, maybe 3D printed food is an answer to food deserts. Um, maybe 3D printed food is an answer to like people who really want a healthy midnight snack and have never been able to find anything that is crispy enough in the right way as a potato chip. Like, I, I would be really, really curious to see what 3D printed food allows us to do that we can't do right now. And I think a lot of the emphasis thus far has been on, like, how do we make our favorite foods 3D printed? Right. No, that, that makes sense. That's a good point. Are you working or on this at all? Are you? Is it part of what you're like interested in 
Um, it's, I'm definitely interested in it. Uh, we don't have any sort of 3D food printing type contract signed up right now, but um, it's actually something that we've been approached about a couple times over the past year, and um, more more just like to get sort of yeah. like this, get our get our take on it. But I would not be surprised if in the next year or two, a couple companies surface that are looking into it in earnest that we could potentially work with at some point. Yeah, no, that, that uh, I figured you probably were more likely to be approached than, than me. <laughs> but um, yeah, well, we'll stay tuned because it seems like something that could be could be a, a topic more discussed in like a year from now. So we'll see. Yeah, it definitely has has potential. Okay, cool. We're going to take another break. We're going to come back and do my speed round game and talk a little industry news. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Music for this short break is brought to you by Taxstar, and this track is called Pianissimo Short. Okay, we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Ali Buzari. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I name a couple things and you just pick your preference. Are you ready? (laughs) Okay, so here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Cocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Uh, chef's counter. Okay, a couple more. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping. Doritos or Pringles? Doritos a thousand times. <laughs> they're, they're complicated, huh? <laughs> a lot going on in Doritos. A miracle. Yeah. yeah. How about translating chefs? As in language or translating recipes? Translating chefs. Yeah, you're very, very, I don't know. How many, how many languages do you speak? Um, three so far. <laughs> no, that's amazing. I knew. Impressive. Yeah. It, it's, I just, I'm a huge fan of, like, Spanish chefs and chefs from Latin America. So to be able to, like, be their conduit to say really cool, profound stuff is, like, the most fun yeah, no, incredible. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Uh, cheese plate. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Napa, or Harrodsburg? Uh, Manhattan. Okay, cool. You live, where do you live now? Out, do you live in... I, I currently live out in the boondocks. I live um, just outside of Healdsburg, which oh, is Sonoma County. Um in like just the 
the most pretty area you could possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah, and I called it Haroldsburg, which is a disgrace, so I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's a really <laughs> stupid name for a town that's impossible to spell or say. Yeah, I should just stick with Napa. Just call the whole area Napa. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, speaking of that area, okay, so uh, I love my news when it's so timely with my guests, so... Industry news, I have a story that just came out on Eater San Francisco about the biggest opening of the year will officially be in November. It's by Ellen Fort. They are talking about Single Thread, which has Mm -hmm. been hyped up as the biggest opening of 2016. So it is going to make it. And this is from your friend who you mentioned earlier, Chef Kyle Connaughton and his wife, Farmer Katina. Am I saying her name? Mm -hmm. And um, it's a restaurant farm in... And it's opening um, soon in this Napa Heldsburg area. And I met them at where I met you at the World's at the um, Roots Conference a couple years ago. Yeah. So you know a lot about this project, I assume. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, are you? I mean, are you involved with? With I mean, how are you involved? Yeah. So um, you know, Kyle is one of the. Uh, the founders and partners in um, Pilot. And Pilot, in turn, functions as sort of like the R&D arm of Single Thread. Uh-huh. So, Very involved. Uh, we have, we have you know, uh, Single Thread is one of many of our clients. But um, when the Single Thread crew, which, by the way, they are like the Harlem Globetrotters of, uh, uh, of, of cooking. Like, this is an insane roster of people who all it, it's like when they like put together one of those like ensemble movies mm-hmm. where like there's no way De Niro took any more than like $50,000 to make this movie it's like that but with cooks <laughs> um, so they're a very very capable crew and, and stuff mainly comes to us to work on when it's just more time intensive than they have time to commit um, in the middle of like getting ready for um, production and you know actually being in service um, but I, I tell you what I have seen um, every step of the restaurant come together like you know there was a moment when Kyle and I were in Japan picking out a lot of the ceramics and um, our partner Dan has been like sanding uh, redwood driftwood plates <laughs> for the past like a uh, few months and it, I've you know we've been here to see almost every brick come together for the restaurant. And I'm telling you, it, it still freaked me out. Um, it, there, I cannot remember the name of it, but there was this one documentary I watched in high school about Sting, when Sting decided to reach over into the jazz world and like take all of the best, like Branford Marsalis and Omar Hakim and like all these amazing jazz artists and take them over to like a French castle and hole up for a little while and just make really awesome music. This is kind of the, the chef version of that. Like, they, they built this amazing building, and they're just filling it with the best that people you can find. And that, on top of the fact that you could, like, fall onto the ground here, and the soil is so fertile that, like, a baby human would probably spring back <laughs> up. Um, it's going to be it's gonna be so much fun. It's going to be just the opposite of what, what, you know, 20 years ago we would have associated with a high-profile restaurant opening. It's going to be fun. 
It sounds amazing. Well, they also, they have, there's guest rooms, there's a farm. It has, you know, it's it's not just a place where you pop in and out for dinner. Um, I think it's going to be a really hard reservation to get. <laughs> it's only, it's 54 seats. I mean, it's, it's not that big of a restaurant. I feel um, it's going to be the hottest ticket in town. Um, sure which is what this article yeah. was about actually. <laughs> so yeah. it'll be it'll be crazy but man it'll be so much fun when you get in there. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited for them. It it sounds it sounds really really great. Um yeah, dream team involved in this. So stay yeah. tuned. Um the other article I had was in GQ why America's two best restaurants won't stop reinventing themselves. And this is by Brett Martin. And I was talking about Alinea in Chicago and 11 Madison Park in New York. Um, And basically based on the title, like they, they just, they do keep reinventing themselves. Alinea just went through a a major uh, renovation, changed up its program a bit. Um, And I think from my take is basically to stay relevant and to keep pushing the boundaries is, is what I, what I get out of these chefs and, and why they do that. Yeah. Um, I guess my take on that has always been, uh, based on this very, very simple principle of, um, sensory psychology, like how we, how we perceive taste and aroma and sight and touch and all these things. The principle is that your brain as amazing of a computer as it is, even our brains have limits, and one of the ways it deals with those limits is it tunes out everything that's constant. So, like, you know, you can see your own nose, and you can smell the smell of your house, and you can um, still technically hear um, that droning of the air conditioner in the middle of the night. But your brain tunes out all of those things because they're consistent, and they're not offering you anything else that you need to pay attention to. And when it changes, when the air conditioner cuts out, or when um, you, I don't know, if you, like, broke your nose and your nose, like, shifted places relative to your eyes, um, all of a sudden you can't stop looking at it, and it's like it's appeared again. Um, the same thing happens when we eat, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why, like, small plates and tasting menus and all that stuff have had so much, so much success. It's because when you're eating a 20-ounce steak, your brain is starting to slowly pay less and less attention to that steak with each bite that is the same. But when you're at Alinea or EMP and you're eating, you know, two, three bites per course and then something completely different and, like, very shrewdly curated to reset your brain and make your brain pay attention in a, in a fresh new light is put in front of you, all of a sudden then you're getting so much more bang for your food buck. Um, and so, you know, I, just like we're seeing restaurants move to um, tasting menus or at the very least, like, lots of little small things that you can enjoy a little bit of. I, you know, it's it's no surprise that like a restaurant like Next has had so much success actually becoming a completely different restaurant every three or four months. Mm-hmm. And it's not as much about pushing boundaries. Like a lot of the amazing menus that the guys at Next have been doing are like looking backwards at, uh, you know, uh, Boku store and looking at your childhood and looking at Chicago steakhouses. Like it, it's not pushing the boundaries and, and inventing food nobody's ever seen before. It's presenting it in in succession with a bunch of different ideas that keep your brain hooked. So I think that's probably what's going on with um, the guys at EMP and Alinea is just they're they're taking clients through the pacing and the changes in their menu. Why not take their clients through the pacing and changes in what that restaurant is if you have somebody who's going to go there two or three times over the course of a lifetime? 
Right. I agree. I think the pushing the boundaries also just comes in play, too, with just willing to change things up, even though things have been are, are going so so well and they're on the best of lists and and they're not short of people making reservations. There was a part of this talking about Alinea, how they when p- guests are now coming in, they're sitting them down at a communal table or with other people mm-hmm. just to see their reaction. Um, it's kind of like a joke on them. Like, no, you're not about to pay for this expensive dinner and, and come in and sit at communal when you didn't expect it. But they're doing that like as an element of surprise and like to just, to, yep. I don't know. It was just, um, they're not afraid to try things out and, and dare to be different. And, um, yeah, they're, I, I'm lucky I've had the experience of dining, dining at both places and they're, they're, they're quite, quite remarkable. So um, yeah. Stay tuned for whatever they do next. <laughs> yeah, and and you know just to just to touch on that really briefly, uh, like if if um, if if they're if the big part of the story is changing things up when things are already happening well, I mean that that also goes back to like the twenty ounce steak um, analogy or like eating a whole pizza. Both of those experiences are amazing. <laughs> like I'm not saying that eating a twenty ounce steak is is bad or it's an unpleasurable experience, it's probably amazing. But what you can do when you give somebody the pleasure of a 20-ounce steak in a few bites and then move them on to a new clean slate of even you know amplified pleasure and enjoyment and stimulus, um, that's when you can blow people's minds. And I think that's what you know Daniel Hume and, and Grant Ackett, those guys are known for. Yeah, we could do stuff that would be a really good meal, but we could also do stuff that might I don't know, bring somebody to tears, Ratatouille style. Right. Uh, so, anyway. No, very true. Okay, we're going to take one more break. Quickly, first, I just want to give a shout-out to City Harvest Bid Against Hunger event, which I was at last week. Um, they raised over $1.4 million um, in the fight against hunger in New York City. There were over 900 guests, over 70 chefs and restaurants involved. It was at Pier 36. It was a really lovely event. Um, so thank you. Thank you for having me, and um, congratulations. It's a, an, a great event for a great cause. And we're going to take one more break. I'm going to come back and do my solo dining experience. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Music for this short break is brought to you by Rectech, and this track is called Dues Paid. Welcome back to Only Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Central. Here's the rundown. Location, Santa Isabel 376, Miraflores, Lima, Peru. The concept, a gastronomic exploration of altitude and Peru's ecosystem, giving guests a culinary expedition from the Amazon to Pacific Coast. At its heart is Matar. An initiative that connects cooking with the earth by traveling across the country in search of ingredients and stories from local producers. The executive chef, Virgilio 
Martinez and his wife, head chef Pio, Pia Leon and pastry chef Ania Ortiz. Sorry, I'm butchering everyone's names. So why did I go? So because Central is one of the most extraordinary restaurants in the world. My experience. I arrived from, for my reservation for one and was seated at a two-top where I could see the open kitchen and dining room action. As I looked over the tasting menu, I was offered a refreshing non-alcoholic beverage with camu camu, cardamom, and cinnamon. The tasting menu began, and course by course, I was presented with the most beautiful and intrinsic dishes and offered detailed explanations by the servers or chefs, including Virgilio. At the end of my meal, I received a tour of the space, including the kitchen and upstairs dining room where ingredients are displayed and they have a garden. So what did I get? It was an 18-plus course menu with spectacular presentations and using dishes with unusual-looking scales, rocks, and more. The tasting menu started with ingredients from 20 meters below sea level, traveled up to over 4,000 meters. Courses with names like spiders on a rock, desert plants, (laughs) high jungle, marine soil, tree skins, an Amazonian rainforest with rose apple, tihaya, and lemongrass. I'm assuming you know what these things are. <laughs> I don't know. It was very unusual. To drink, I had Central's water, which is fertilized and ozonated and purified water that they, they do on-site in reverse osmosis. So my take, sensational presentations and rare flavor combinations. It was like nothing I'd ever had before. Excellent hospitality and service. The Ambiance is a comfortably elegant restaurant with a glass partition showcasing the open kitchen, which is literally open air, in open air, perfect for culinary enthusiasts. Interesting tidbit, Central is currently ranked number four on the world's best restaurants list and number one on Latin America's world's best 50 list. Virgilio has a new book out called Central, co-authored by Nicholas Gill of New Worlder. Personal fun fact, I met Virgilio at the Worlds of Flavor Conference at the CAA in Napa this past, str- this past spring, where Ali was the translator at my chef demo, so we were all there together. The cost was approximately, approximately $120, but as an industry friend, I was comped, which I was very grateful for, so many thanks to Virgilio and his team. Would I go back? Absolutely. Their website is Central Restaurant with an e at the end dot com dot pe and that was a mouthful um (laughs) but i figured i was there recently and i figured it was a fitting one to do with you on the show because of all these amazing i don't know crazy ingredients or have you been there before i haven't been i've had virgilio's food like in um the at the cia he's come to do a couple of events there it's always something absolutely mind-blowing um, that I've never seen before, like like a lot of the ingredients you were talking about. Um, and, again, like the cool thing is uh, it doesn't matter if you've never seen that tropical fruit before. If you can figure out what, like, building blocks are in it, like does it have pectin, does it have, like, oils that are carrying aroma and stuff, you can figure out how to make it work. And, and that's why it's so exciting to be able to, like, taste stuff from um, – you know, Lima and, uh, and, uh, yeah. see if you can try to figure it out and kind of sleuth out what's making it good. 
Yeah, no, it was it was incredible. And at, upstairs they do they have a table set up with with some of the ingredients and spices and things they use because it's unusual. And um, yeah, I was I was impressed. It was like nothing I've ever had before. So uh, mm-hmm. worth worth checking out if if anyone's ever in Lima. And congratulations to them, like on these best of lists, very high rankings. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it's time for the final question. So next week I'm having on Tom Calicchio. He's the chef owner of Craft Restaurants and Witchcraft. He's top chef head judge, and he's a social and political activist. I'm super excited to be having him on the show. So, Ellie, can you ask a question for Tom? Yeah, so this, this is one that I've I've had a lot of fun um, at, like just discussing with with my chef buddies over the years. It's been my experience that every chef has, when they're talking to their employees and their cooks, every chef has a way. Um, especially somebody like Tom, who who's always seemed very very um, conservation minded, very um, ecologically minded, all that stuff. There's always a chef who admonishes their cooks to do one thing or another because it's less wasteful. Like, oh, make sure you, you use, you know, this part of the animal because it's less wasteful or whatever, whatever. One thing that we found is, is so consistent between every chef is the use of rubber, rubber spatulas to get, like, sauce out of a container when you're transferring. And we found that every chef has an amazingly, like, ridiculous story of, like, you know, McDonald's switched to using rubber spatulas, and they saved, like, $1.7 million in a month in all their restaurants. Or, like, Delta switched to, you know, I don't know, getting uh, the last of the cream out of their cream containers with a rubber spatula, and now all of a sudden they could afford to, like, make Economy Comfort Plus a thing. And, like, all of these ridiculous – I don't know if they're if they're made up, if they're tall tales. Every chef has a way to get their cooks to do something – that they feel is less wasteful. And I just want to ask him, like, what, if anything, what story he uses to get his chefs to use a rubber spatula. I love it. And you, you also just solved a mystery for me. I go to a ton of events, and always in every gift bag, there's a rubber spatula. I have so many. <laughs> oh, I, I, my, my, like, super, super aggressive hot take is that a rubber spatula is way better than a spoon. <laughs> I'm serious. I have a collection, all different sizes, and now now I I, I appreciate their value so much more. <laughs> exactly. You you've you've secretly been collecting the most useful implement in the kitchen. I'm telling you, I had no idea of it. That's like yeah, amazing. So and a great yeah. question for Tom. So I will I will find out. He probably has a lot of a lot of like he probably could say a lot of things that he has his chefs do, I would imagine. Yeah, he's got stories, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm going to need a longer show. <laughs> so um, I think, feel I always need a longer show because we're out of time now. So um, thank you so much for coming on, and um, congratulations on your whole career, on your book. Um, it's incredible. I'm, I'm impressed. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been awesome. Uh, well, my pleasure. I hope to see you soon. And um, yeah, so everyone, I've been talking to Ali Bazari. He's the co-founder of Pilot R&D. He's a chef with a PhD in food biochemistry and the author of Ingredient, Unveiling the Essential Elements of Food. 
I know the book is on Amazon, that you can find it there. Um, go check it out. You can go to his website, pilotrd.com. On Twitter, he's Ali Bazari and Instagram, Bazari Ali. And that's, I'll spell his name, A-L-I-B-O-U-Z-A-R-I. You can find me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We're also on Stitcher and iTunes, so you can find us anywhere, anytime. Many thanks to my show's fall season sponsor. That's One House Hospitality Headhunters. Their website is one-house.com. Twitter, one underscore house, and Instagram, one house. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S. Thanks always to my engineer, Pierre. And thank you for listening. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with another live show. Till then, have a good one. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Everybody gets broke.